Well, good morning. My name is Neil Chotai, the pastor of Church Life here at the West Park, and I want to welcome you all today, and happy Father's Day to all the father and fatherhood figures, the coaches, the mentors. Thank you for pouring into the next generation. We want to honor you today. And um, so traditionally here at the church, we give a gift, you know, whether it was Mother's Day or Father's Day, ran out of carnations for the men. Um, Okay, nobody got that one. Okay, but we're going to give dads root beer to all the men in the church, okay? So if you are 18 and over, you get one of these. These are going to be chilled nicely after service. I have a team to hand this to you. So we just want to honor you and thank you for all the things that all the guys do here uh, in their families and also at West Park Church. Now, uh, traditionally, this would be a Father's Day message. No, but we are in the book of Mark. We're going to be continuing our series in the book of Mark. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 50. So now this is a continuation of the scripture of the last two weeks. Um, Two weeks ago, we had Jesus, who was with his closest three disciples up at the Mount of Transfiguration. Beautiful things happen. They come down into the valley, and there's absolute total chaos, and Jesus is there to heal a child that is demon-possessed. So now this continues that passage of scripture. Jesus is on his way with his disciples on the way to the cross to Jerusalem. And I'm going to ask all of us to stand as we read the scripture together. I'll be reading from Mark 9, starting in verse 30. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were, because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be the first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two two hands to go to hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. You may be seated. So congratulations. That was a long passage, but you made it through. It is a quite long passage, this one, but we're going to work through it. 
Now, when I was a youth pastor in the big city of Whitby, Ontario, which is east of Toronto, um, I had a ministry there. We were there, for, Rob and I were there for about seven years. And one of the promises I made was that if I was a youth pastor for a student that was in grade seven, I would be their youth pastor until they graduate in grade 12. And we had such a great time there in Whitby. Now, I remember when it first started, uh, we had just hired an associate pastor. And the associate pastor, good guy, and his wife um, was actually the volunteer, our full-time kids director as well. And they had uh, two kids, a grade seven and a grade four. Now, Zach is going to grade seven. And Zach is was very, he's a very interesting guy, really cool guy. Um, the interesting thing was, there was an argument kind of like between me and the kids director about when youth should start. She ended her the kids ministry at grade six, and she said, no, youth should start in grade seven. And I said, I want to start youth in grade nine. So we argued a bit, and, and then we went to the associate pastor who happens to be her husband. He obviously sides with her, I don't know why, <laughs> right? Then we, then we went to the lead pastor, make the final decision. Uh, don't know why he sided with the associate pastor. Mind you, he was the cousin of the associate pastor. <laughs> so I started my ministry for grade seven to grade 12 in that church. So Zach is there, and, and Zach is a young grade seven. Okay? When he talked, he talked like almost a kid in grade three. And I, I mentioned this to Zach, if he's listening today, he knows it. So I said to Zach, Zach, you're. You're in grade seven. You need to act like a grade seven. You put away that elementary school stuff. You are in grade seven. You're called to something higher, to something better. I said, when you're in my presence and at youth, you will be a grade seven student and act like grade seven student. You will mature. And I said, Zach, I said to him, Zach, when you're not in my presence and not at youth, you're going to act like a grade seven student anyways. Zach's looking at me kind of like, oh, this guy's going to be my next youth pastor? Oh, no. But you know what? I told my kids there, my kids, my youth group, it said, God has called you to something better. He's calling you to something higher. So the message I have today is called the high calling of a disciple. For those who are followers of Christ, we are disciples of Christ. And the big idea for today is disciples of Christ are called to exhibit five qualities of life. So we're going deep into the verses now and to find out what those five qualities of life are. So the first quality is a life of learning. Now after the encounter of transfiguration and the healing of the demon-possessed child, Jesus now passes through Galilee and he is going incognito. He doesn't want anyone to know where they are. He is on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to go to the cross. And the reason why he didn't want, want anybody to know where he was going, because he wanted to spend time with the disciples. This was a time of intense teaching with the disciples, wanting to tell them a few things and, and sharing things with them. And this is what God wants to do with us as disciples. You know, it's great. It's beautiful coming here on a Sunday morning. It's great being part of a life group. 
or, or a discipleship group, or, or, or men's ministry, women's ministry, seniors ministry, or young adults, or, or youth, and it, those things are good. But there's something about the personal discipleship when you are with God alone, that it's just you and him, and God reveals things through you, to you, through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, to illuminate the scriptures as you are in that study, that personal study between you and Christ, that we deepen our relationship with him. And it's a lifestyle of learning. That is what we are called to do. Through a life of learning, we obtain wisdom and understanding of scripture, which is so important. Proverbs 16, 16 says that having wisdom and understanding is better than having silver or gold. It is very, very valuable. Going on, Jesus says to them, the second, he gives them the second prediction about his death. He says the son of man, which is Jesus, is going to be delivered into the hands of men. So if you just imagine being the disciples and hearing this. And this section here where it says going to be delivered, there's no real good translation in the English, but it's a futuristic uh, tense that he's using. And, and he's basically saying a futuristic present tense. And basically th this is what the translation is trying to say. Even though betrayal is still in the future, it is as good as happening right now. That the betrayal is basically said and done, even though it hasn't really taken place. The interesting thing about here is what the disciples are hearing is that when Jesus said delivered, it refers to who's delivering him up. Who is delivering Jesus up for, for the sacrifice? It is God himself. God himself is offering up the perfect sacrifice. Humanity cannot give the perfect sacrifice. We did that in the past, the Old Testament period. We did that. We failed. But it is when God provides the perfect sacrifice, that is when a reconciliation between God and humanity works. The astonished to hear again that they will kill him. And then after three days, he will rise. And the disciples are hearing this, and, and they're just, they're, they're not quite understanding what Jesus is trying to say. What is he telling all of us. And again, it says, but they did not understand. And they were afraid to ask because the reason why they were afraid to ask because in the previous scripture, when they had questioned Jesus, Jesus said, oh, you unbelieving generation. So they decided we're going to keep quiet. We're just going to let things go. Okay. Somehow we're going to figure this thing out. They didn't want to say anything, but we must constantly be learning from God when we are in the scriptures, in our personal study. Certain things we may not know. God is a beautiful mystery. We're not supposed to know everything about God. Our finite minds can't do that. But we need to be lifelong learners of the scriptures, of what God, as he reveals himself to us, and he chooses us to have this relationship with him, and he reveals himself to us within the scripture. So going to verse 33, we we're going to be looking at the second quality. So they came to Capernaum. And as they're walking to Capernaum, they're walking single file. Jesus is leading the way. And, um, and he goes into the house afterwards. And he says this question, what, what are you guys arguing about on the road? What are you guys arguing about? Now, it wasn't like supernatural hearing that Jesus had. It was regular hearing because he could hear them argue 
They were arguing. I don't know when you were younger, but when you were arguing with your siblings, did your parents ever, ever say, hey, what are you guys talking about? Did you ever get in trouble by your parents? I know I did. You know, it's quite interesting because I, I would do something, and then my mom would ask me, sometimes parents ask the craziest questions. My mom would say, do you think I'm stupid? How do you answer that question? <laughs> Seriously. If you say no, you're lying to me. You know, if you say yes, doesn't matter how fast you get dog call 911, your mom's gonna beat you. <laughs> okay? I mean, <laughs> I mean, certain questions, like, what, what do you say? So these guys, the, the disciples are like, you know what, we're just gonna keep quiet. We're not gonna say a word at all. But Jesus knew, Jesus knew what they were arguing about because they were loud. And they were arguing about who was going to be the greatest. Jesus just tells them, he's going away. He's gonna die. He's gonna rise. Okay, now who's the greatest? Is it you, Peter? Is it Thomas? Who is it? Who is it? And they're arguing back and forth. Who is it? Who's going to be the greatest? See, in the first century period, it was in everybody's mindset that they had to be the greatest, that they had to be number one. It was in the secular world of the day, but it permeated religion. It was within the Jewish religious system as well. Remember the teachers of the law? They would go into the temple, give money. Oh, look at them. He's the greatest. He gave the most. Or when they prayed, oh, God, hey, I'm here. God, God, I'm here. Oh, listen to him pray. He sounds great. He must be the greatest prayer person ever. So in their minds with the disciples, you had to be in first position all the time to be the greatest. And they believe that, especially that since Jesus is the individual who is coming and who is meeting all the Old Testament prophecies, this is what they're thinking. We're gonna walk into Jerusalem with our shoulders like this, held, held high, and we are with Jesus. Yeah, we are the greatest. We are the greatest disciples. We're the greatest people on this planet because we got Jesus. Yeah. It's all about who can be the greatest. And Jesus knows exactly what they're talking about. And this is important. We may not see it really as something big, but this is important. Sitting down. This is big. Because this is what rabbis would do when it's time to teach. So Jesus sat down. The 12 are there. And he says this incredible statement. Anyone who wants to be first must be the last must be last. Further, must be a servant of all. A life of service. That's the second way. A life of service. In the kingdom of God, the greatest must become the least and must be servant of all. This goes against every single thing that the disciples, that even what we as current disciples think as well. A life of service is so important. That is what God wants us to be. People who live a life of service. One of the commentaries I was looking at said that the spirit of service is the passport of eminence into the kingdom of God. For it is the spirit of the master who himself became servant of all. And this is exactly what Jesus did. He became servant of all. This kind of service Jesus talks about involves sacrifice. And in verse 36, he has a beautiful object lesson that he gives. 
So Jesus, he, he, takes a, he takes a little child. And this child's old enough for him to hold in his arms. And then as he's teaching the disciples, he says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not only welcome me, but the one who sent me. So you're not just welcoming Jesus, you're welcoming God. Again, this is an astonishing, mind-blowing statement that Jesus is making to the disciples. Because when the disciples heard, he said, child, this is what is going in their mind, as what society has put children in a certain level, that children are useless. Children are dependent. Children are a cost to the family. Only when they become of an adult age are they worth anything. That was what society thought of children. Jesus says, you take this child, and whoever welcomes this child welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. And as Jesus is talking to them, not just in Greek, but he's speaking the Aramaic, the word child in Aramaic is actually also the word servant. So he, said he took the little servant, placed the servant in his arms. Whoever welcomes this servant in my name welcomes me, and not only me, but the one who sent me. This was mind-blowing. God, you want us to serve the servants? You want us to sacrifice our lives? This is what we have done so far. Like, we followed you, and this is the end game? Jesus is here elevating people, elevating individuals who are lower class. And God wants us to serve every single person, including the lowest. See, the idea of the idea of every life is precious doesn't come from the government. It comes from Jesus' concern in society as was written in the Gospels. And as the disciples are processing all of this information, they're probably looking at one another thinking, I can't believe we have done this to come to this point to say that we have to serve these individuals. Serve the servants. That's not what society says. That is not what we have been brought up in Hebrew school that have learned this. So they're, they're just talking away, and they're, and, and they're just mind-blown. It's like, we cannot believe Jesus has said this. And, and one of the disciples, they are grasping at straws, and they're thinking, okay, okay, what can I say to, to redeem ourselves so we don't have to do this? And then we go to the next verse, and John says something. He says, teacher, teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. We told them to stop because he was not. One of us. Okay, you want us to call servants, but wait, Jesus, we're, we're with you. And, and we told them to stop because they're not one of us. They're, they're, they're not one of us. What does Jesus say? We're going to go back in there in a second. But what Jesus wants us to have, what Jesus wants us to have is to make sure that we are there for those individuals. So here is John, um, and, and, and what he's trying to do is he's trying to place himself in a matter of importance when he shouldn't. And this was the same as in Numbers eleven twenty six, when Joshua went to Moses and said to Moses, Moses, somebody's prophesying in your name. You can't have this happen. It's only you, and I'm your assistant. 
And George, Moses said, no, that's okay. And Jesus, in this case, says the same thing. Disciples have this prideful heart, and it's not good. And that leads us to our third point, that God wants us to live a life of unity. A life of unity. Disciples of Christ must be united with one another. It shouldn't be just about us. It shouldn't be just about us in our own little kingdoms and doing what we think we need to do. It's about working together as brothers and sisters in the kingdom. We are in this thing together. That's why Jesus says, do not stop them. Do not stop them. For no one who does a miracle in my name says anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. He immediately rebukes John and says, don't stop them. Don't stop them. Because they're doing it in my name, in the name that matters, and that is the name of Jesus. Jesus goes further along and he says that you belong to the Messiah, that they belong to the Messiah, that they belong to Jesus, that they belong to Jesus. He says, in my name, in the name of Christ. It's not about setting our own little kingdoms up. It's not about, you know, being better than the other disciple that's near us. God calls us in no Romans 12, 5, and he says that we are one body of believers. One body of believers. So we looked at three qualities already. A life of learning, a life of service, and a life of unity. The fourth one is a life of modeling. Life of modeling. How are we to other individuals who are Christ followers and those who are not Christ followers? Now, the next passage of Scripture is a bit intense, okay? If you're watching TV and they have a little warning, this is the warning, okay? It's going to be intense of what Jesus says privately to the disciples and what he is saying to us right now. This is what Jesus says. He says, if anyone causes these little ones... Now, these little ones here does not refer to children. It refers to those who are weaker in the faith. That those who believe me, if they cause them to stumble, it would be better if a large millstone were hung around their neck and then they were thrown into the sea. It's a pretty sobering statement that Jesus is making. Jesus is saying, anyone, if anyone does this, it's better. If you're a stumbling block to somebody who's weaker than you, a weaker brother or a weaker sister, or one that doesn't even follow Christ and they're watching you, if you are a stumbling block to them, it's better that this thing happens to you. Jesus then gives us picture words, and this is a millstone right here. It's used for, for taking grain and crushing it so there's wheat. And the bigger ones would be pulled by an animal. And Jesus is saying, this thing, it's heavy. It's best for this to go around your neck. Around your neck. Remember, society is agriculture-based. And they're all around doing agriculture. You know, only some Israelites were up by the sea, by the waters. So they knew exactly what Jesus was saying about this. And Jesus says that it's best for this to be around your neck and you get thrown into the sea. Now remember the sea. Whenever we saw the Sea of Galilee, when the disciples were on it, what happened? There was always this storm coming by and they were scared. And you know, it wasn't a great place to be. They were afraid of the sea. This was not good. You know what? Being in the sea, it's not like a Disney moment. Okay? 
It's not like the little mermaid's gonna be there and Sebastian and all the friends there, flounder. It's not like that. It's not a Disney movie. This is real words of Jesus Christ. And the sea is a terrible place. And, and, and Jesus is being so, so sobering here with his disciples trying to teach them that you need to be a good role model for the people that are around you. It is so important. It is so important. God has called you into a relationship not with him, not to be a poor role model, role model, but a good role model, a positive role model. And you're probably wondering, how do we cause a younger one in the faith to stumble? Various ways. There's a direct way in which we engage in lying and gossiping, cheating, the love for the world. Indirect ways. We provoke people into jealousy and anger. You know, we push the right buttons with people and we can get the response that we want and we can be a pain in their side. Or deliberately, just by not living a righteous life. What are we on the inside when nobody's looking, but on the outside we're something else? You know, in my house, my oldest child is a role model for the middle child. The middle child is a role model for the youngest child. My wife and I are role models for both of them, for, for everyone. We have to live a life to the high calling that God has given us to be role models in the world that we live in, in our families, in our communities, in our churches, in our neighborhoods. Now, in the next few paragraphs, Jesus gets very graphic when he talks about our lives and when he talks about the stumbling and he talks about hell. You know, many times we talk about heaven. We love talking about heaven. All the time. We love talking about heaven. But Jesus talks about hell too. He talks about a place that this exists. That there is a place of eternal damnation and eternal judgment. And this is what Jesus says. Verse 43. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to go with two hands and go into hell. Where the fire never goes out. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to be thrown into hell with two feet rather than than crippled for life. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to go with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. It's pretty graphic. When I saw that this was the passage I was preaching on Father's Day, I'm like, oh great, I'm telling people that they're going to hell. This is fantastic. This is great. But this is what Jesus is saying, as graphic as it is. He is saying that everything that you do, everything that you do, don't let it stumble another person. Everywhere you go, make sure you go the right way that God wants you to lead, that leads you. Make sure you do that, as opposed to going in the wrong way and you're going to stumble somebody or what you see. Everything that you see, make sure it does not lure you into sin so you are not a stumbling block to another person. Again, Jesus is not demanding that we mutilate our bodies, but he demands that we live our lives intentionally to our higher calling, and it requires radical spiritual surgery on our part. He goes on and he further says, he's talking about hell. He's talking about, well, worms, Eat 
that, okay, where the worms that eat them do not die, and the fire is not quenched. It's not a good image. In verse 48, he's talking about hell. Multiple times, Jesus does talk about hell, and what he's referring to is he's referring to a place called Gehenna. And I'm going to give you some history of this. Gehenna was a place where Israel had some really bad, horrible years of its existence. Horrible, evil kings came to power. There was a king named Ahaz, there was a king named Manasseh. And they totally went against God. And what they did is that they believed in a false god, an idol named Molech. And it was in this place called Gehenna that Molech would be worshipped. And the way Molech was worshipped was through human sacrifices. Children were sacrificed. It was a horrible, horrible place where children were dying, where people were dying to appease an idol named Molech. Some commentators said that they'd be playing drums so that the drums would, 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 you'd hear the drums instead of the cries of the children who were dying. That's how bad this place was. When King Josiah became right after, he, he said, no, we will not worship this. We will worship God only. And Gehenna became a garbage dump for Jerusalem. And in that garbage dump was all the human waste of Jerusalem would be there. And carcasses would be there. And there would be this fire constantly burning up the carcasses, burning up the garbage, burning up the waste. There were worms there because there were so many carcasses for, that had to be burned that the worms would have continuous food all the time. That's the imagery that is here about what Gehenna, what hell is like. Fire constantly burning and burning. In the intertestamental years between what we call Malachi and the New Testament, the people said this is what God's judgment would be like. This is what the wrath of God is. This is what hell is. This is exactly what it would be like. So it's sober teaching that Jesus is giving. He is longing for his disciples to be good examples, to be role models to all individuals. That is what God wants us to do. Be good role models. Because he has called us to something great. Higher calling of being a disciple. And lastly, it's a life of consecration. A life of consecration. Jesus goes on and he says, everyone will be salted with fire. Now this fire does not refer to the fire that I mentioned before. This fire refers to the Old Testament sacrifices that were taking place back in the Old Testament days. And in Old Testament days, when sacrifices were given, salt was put on them. So everyone will be salted with fire. And he goes on that salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? See, back then, salt, salt, if you want salt, we just go to the store and get it. Back then, salt was from the sea. So you took the salt. And how does salt become, lose its saltiness? You add impurities to it. You add other things like the sand and, and, and other things. And then you eat it and you taste it and it's, it's not salty anymore. It's lost its saltiness. See, God wants us to consecrate ourselves continuously, not to have any impurities in us as we go to God. A disciple of Christ totally is committed to consecrate their lives to God all the time. It's interesting here because later on he says, 
Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. This goes back to verse 30. At the beginning where the disciples are, are talking to each other about who is the greatest. But we live at peace with one another. We live at peace with one another. We live, we live in peace with God. It's all about consecration. It's about pouring out our lives unto God each and every moment of the day, being a, an offering to him, coming to the altar and saying, God, I am here, that you have called me into relationship with you, and you have called me to be a disciple, and now I pour myself unto you so I can be wholly available for your purposes, for what you have called me to do in my life. That is what disciples do. I'm reminded of what Paul said. Paul said, you know, I, I pour myself out as a drink offering unto the Lord. That he's given everything. He was saying this before he died. You know, you know like, like it's a sacrifice for me. That, and the Bible says we are to be living sacrifices. That we consecrate ourselves unto God. You know, over the past, I would say, eight weeks now. We were nine. We've had around seven people pass away from their associated from this church. And I can truly say they were disciples of Jesus Christ. They were individuals who God called them into a relationship. And they strove as best as they could to live that life of a disciple. And I'm sure the words that were said to them was, well done, my good and faithful servant. Servant of God, a disciple of God, a disciple of Christ. These were individuals who lived out their lives for the higher calling. That is what God calls us to do as well. And we have individuals in our life, in this church, who have done that. It is not something that we can't do, but we can do this. And God wants us to be his disciples. Embrace the higher calling as he has called us. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we come to you in the mighty name of Jesus, and we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for, for calling us into life with you, O oh God. And Father, as we come to you right now, may we be individuals who accept the high calling of a disciple. May we be the ones, O oh God, Father, to live a life of learning, of service, of unity, of modeling and consecration unto you. We are thankful for the role models that we have had in our life that have done this, oh God. And Lord, how you call us to do this as well. It is not something that is impossible, but through you, oh God, we can do this. You have called us to eternal life. You have called us to a life that is greater. And that life is being a disciple. Be with us now, oh God. And Father, I thank you for all those father and fatherhood figures in this place. I pray a blessing upon them. Thank you for the coaches and mentors. Father, be with those who may have not had a good experience with their father. Let them know that you are the greatest father. Maybe those who have lost a father, let them know that you are the one that comes alongside of them and love them. For you are the greatest father. We give you the praise of God. Help us to be disciples of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.